Welcome to the Small Business Surgeon Podcast, the show where we dissect the businesses of top producers, examine their growth strategies, and share with you the bare bones of their success. I am your host, Samuel Smith, and I'm glad you're here. Let's operate. Hey guys, what's up? Welcome to another edition of The Small Business Surgeon. Happy Monday. Guys, I'm here today with a super special guest that I've been meaning to chat with for a while. He is the owner of Duck Dens LLC and the host of the IDMS podcast all the way from Indiana. We're joined today by Mr. Zach Clevenger. Zach, did I get that name right? Uh, Clevenger, close enough. Oh, man. <laughs> Zach, <laughs> welcome good. to the show. Mr. Clevenger, my apologies. Welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity, and uh, I think we're going to have a lot of fun today. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So you're in manufacturing, dude. How do you even begin? Man, we got so much to unpack because you're, you, you have Duck Dens LLC that manufactures stuff for ducks, but you came from the RV industry. You came from all the way back in the day at nine years old selling stuff on uh, on eBay that you were making. So give us a little bit of background into who Zach is and just exactly how you got where you're at, mate, because that's, so, uh, that's a hell of a story. Yeah, uh, I was really fortunate. I grew up in a uh, family that was raised in small businesses and then they went into them themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, I was raised by my mom and stepdad, uh, little background on my stepdad. He's got seventh grade education, but one of the smartest guys you'll ever meet, um, got kicked out in seventh grade for fights. And from then on, basically went to work and, uh, never went back to school. Now I have, Uh, I have quite a few English listeners. So just explain how old is seventh grade? That is, 12 to 13 years old oh wow so he was out of school at 12 or 13 yeah so i mean anything basically above pre-algebra in school and that level of reading just it he never learned it until later i mean he got his ged because it was something he always wanted to do Mm -hmm. um, when he was 25 so i I think letters are overrated when it comes to math um you know so algebra is that really that important i'm not not for most people (laughs) (laughs) But so, uh, I've got here in your bio, right? You started out at eight or nine years old running a yeah. CNC lathe after school. How does a nine-year-old kid? Because I've got a 10-year-old, and I'm not sure I'd let him near a CNC lathe. So uh, it was an old Haas machine. Uh, it was probably 10 or 12 years old then. Um, and basically, it was a start, stop, and a safety foot pedal when you open the door. Mm-hmm. So um, real simple operation. And basically what you do is you'd hit the stop with your foot, open the door, slide the part to the stop point, and then shut the door. You'd hit uh, start, and then it would run a, about a two-and-a-half, three-minute cycle, and you'd hit the stop button, hit the foot pedal again, open the door, and repeat. So I'd do that probably two or three days a week, maybe an hour or two after school. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really just kind of a fun thing that my stepdad and I did. It, you know, He worked a lot. At that point, he was working – 80, 90 hours a week. And it was one of those things I could go in there. Um, his office was right next to the machine. We could spend a little time together that way. Nice. And um, eBay was semi new to him at that time. And so it was one of those things where that was an outlet to sell these little motorcycle parts. That's just incredible. So you've been a hustler or a entrepreneur, I would say, since eight or nine years old. And so how did that go? Did you, did you make any successes selling motorbike parts? Or was that just more like a, a stepping stone there? It was a stepping stone. We did it for two or three years. Um, I probably made, I don't know, 3,500 bucks a year doing it. It's not a ton of money. Um, we split it 50, 50. So, um, 
you know, he paid all the materials, all that stuff. Um, electric power was his machine, but we split it 50, 50. He went through the process of teaching me how to take photos, upload them, post them on eBay. Um, really more than anything else. It was a learning experience at a young age. Dude, that's a, uh, that's a really neat thing to get out of, uh, of a parent, especially a step parent who, uh, oh, it, unbelievable. I mean, my stepdad, I was the oldest out of family raised me just like his own. I couldn't have asked for anything better. Wonderful, dude. Yeah. That's a, that's a good, good thing to hear. So you got out of that and, um, went into the RV industry and launched a, a major business attempt. Now, you know, part of what we do on a small business surgeon is dissect businesses and talk about failures because uh, a lot of successful yeah. guys, they don't get to successful until you failed a few times. So if it's yeah. not too painful, talk us through this RV business and how that went. So actually, I'm going to walk you back a little further into yeah, my, first fail, my first fail points. So uh, in 08, my parents' machine shop crashed. I was in middle school, early high school. Uh, early high school at that point and uh, machine shop crashed uh, came down to what are they going to do and they got into the hunting industry okay um, I got heavily involved in design at that point the engineering side of things and started to learn some of those in-person sales relationships mm -hmm. and so um, that really kind of launched me into um, my first failed venture which I launched when I was 19. Um, it was actually firearm parts for AR-15s we were doing accessories well, there's a there's a gentleman here in College Station makes really good money selling uh, uh, firearm parts that he manufactures himself. So uh, tell us a little bit about making parts for AR-15s. How did that go? So um, we hit it. It would have been 2013 is when I hit that market. Mm -hmm. um, we did that for about a year. Um, and at that point, it was one of those things. I was 19. I was in college. I partied too much. I made a little bit of money and kind of dropped out of it. Um, I didn't spend the money back in marketing. Um, it was one of those things where I was putting 10, 15 hours a week into it. Um, and every penny that was sold, we did it online primarily. Um, I spent versus putting it back into the business. Right. It's right. funny because um, that step into there, I bought my own extrusion die, which was about three or four grand mm -hmm. to manufacture the accessory rail. And um, that actually was my stepdad's first step into that market for the machine shop. And now it's 90% of their business. Oh, so that's still around, huh? Yeah. Yeah. So the, my business is not, but his machine shop, as I transitioned out of it, transitioned it into doing parts for other companies because he had done our rails, mm -hmm. had them done some other stuff. And now I think they'll do probably seven or $8 million in uh, gun parts for other um, companies that are retail sailors. That's really impressive. So, maybe, maybe we should get him on here too. He'd be a great one actually. <laughs> But uh, so that was kind of from me kind of blowing that opportunity. It gave him opportunity. And then when I graduated college, I went into um, being a design engineer and uh, did that for a little while for custom fab equipment. Mm -hmm. And then I got into the RV industry and the luxury motorhomes and worked as an engineer for a few years there. Dude, um, I've always loved looking at those things on uh, on YouTube videos. My uh, my ten year olds obsessed with uh, with RVs. So how how was it uh, doing product development for the RV industry? Anything fun come about from yeah. that? You, you make those little TVs that come up out of the floor, then or what? Absolutely. Um, so the product I was over is a million dollar uh, motorhome uh, built by Newmar. It was their King Air. Um, it was top of the line motorhome for a uh, production run facility where they're mm -hmm. running units every day. Um, so that was a lot of fun. We developed a lot of electrical systems and integration, and then a lot of mechanical aspects as well. Um, 
but really what happened was um uh i've got married at 21 my wife and i uh, decided to uh have a kid at 25 and um when she was pregnant i kind of had a mini midlife crisis of i've always wanted to be my own business but i've settled the last three or four years of making good money as an engineer um and i hadn't really taken a step back into looking at what i wanted to do since and so that led me to uh that and some uh, family issues um just some stuff that happened there with my stepdad having a quadruple bypass and my sister oh, wow. being involved in a uh, car accident all within about three days of each other um led me to between my wife being due in two months and those two things led me to really evaluate what I was doing and why. Right. Um, needless to say, I quit my job two months later. And um, while I was there, still there, had launched Grand Venture. Um, so Grand Venture, that was, that was an off-road kind of RV deal, wasn't it? Yeah, it was off-road campers, um, towables. And uh, really what we did was uh, I'd been in the hunting industry, knew a lot of guys that hunted, and there was no good way to travel to the back roads that were hard to get to that you had a reliable product. Right, right. And so that was kind of my intro into that off-road overlanding market was launching that company. And um, that company led to me almost getting divorced. <laughs> so what and went so, wrong? Yeah, tell, tell us what went wrong. Take us down the path of the Grand Venture because it sounds like a good idea. Um, great idea. I, yeah, I like going um, off-road. I like getting back in us. one piece. What killed us were primarily two things. Number one, we went in with the expectation of we had an investor interested. Um, some, thing, some things fell through, um, didn't work out. And so from there, we self-funded and moved on. Um, with that, number one issue was I did not tell my wife we were self-funding it. I did not tell her where the money was coming from. Ah, that, yeah. <laughs> so um, she was, our son had just been born like a week prior to finding out we were losing financing. And so through that, I thought it was a better idea not to discuss it and just move on. Mm. Uh, wrong attitude, wrong belief. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I could see why that would cause a little tension. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, my, it was about seven, eight months later, my wife found out we were self-funding it. Oof. And yeah. uh, so that, that was a... Uh, so what's, that life, was a what's life like with no testicles? <laughs> yeah I, I can only imagine the punishment from that but uh. you you know it was a long um long year and a half mm -hmm. honestly our relationship's better now than it was before good good I'm, um, I'm happy for you man so i mean i would never recommend going through that to get to that point but uh so really what happened was uh when we lost our funding uh, my instant reaction was we need to build a show unit and we need to hit every trade show we can. That makes sense. Um, I could see that. And in theory, it made sense. What I did not realize at that time was um, the majority of people go to shows to see product, not the byproduct. That is true. Or to, to get drunk too. I mean, yeah, party, yeah. Those, those, we've all done our first share of trade shows, right? Exactly. And so when we had that issue, um, we hit trade shows that were costing us tens of thousands of dollars. And, uh, you know, our budget wasn't huge. And my, you know, my outlook was, okay, we've got to hit every show we can to move product. And product just was not moving from trade shows. Um, so I took some, uh, I took Eddie Maloof's social media course on Facebook ads, Instagram ads, that kind of stuff. Right. Um, learned a lot in that. 
and uh, ultimately started pushing it. And by the time we started gaining traction, we were completely out of money. Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> and so that, that was just... What happened to the RV then? Where did that go? The uh, the business of it? The demo model. The, the demo model we actually uh, kept uh, for ourselves because it was one of those things. We built a premium unit. There were two or three companies mm-hmm. that were building units that were above $40,000 in this market. And so um, what we did was we looked at the flaws of those companies and improved on them with electronics, uh, structural integrity, and Mm -hmm. then um, ease of upgrading in the future. Right. Um, Where we failed was those companies have been around for five, 10, 15 years, depending on which one you're talking about. They already had trust in their consumers. Right, Um, Right. I expected if we had a great product, we'd go out there and people could see the differences that I could see from an engineer standpoint or from a functional standpoint. A lot of the people that were looking at that market of $40,000, $50,000 campers were guys that just, they were busy guys, they had a business or they were a software developer, something along those lines. And they were looking to get out for two, three, four days, a weekend, somewhere out into the wilderness. And they truly didn't have the background in some of the products to know what was, where the expenses were in our stuff versus our competitors. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and I did a horrible job of knowing that and explaining that. So what would you say the biggest thing you learned from that was? Um, biggest thing is you've got to get people to see you and trust you. That's mm-hmm. number one. Oh, yeah. You, you, I mean, that if people don't know you and don't trust you, they're never going to buy from you. That's why we're here, man. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. So um, you still have the camper then? I actually just sold it to a buddy a week ago. He'd oh. been hounding me for, he had been hounding me for a while. Um, it was smaller than what my wife liked for our family. Mm-hmm. And so I finally let it go. And, uh, we're actually looking for a, uh, motor home to travel for some of our other travel stuff. I know, a guy that, I know a guy that sells some. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so how long did it take you from exiting the, uh, motor home industry to, uh, to, to restart? Because I know that, uh, a lot of entrepreneurs, when they go through this, they kind of, they kind of tuck their heads down for a year or two years or so and, and kind of regroup. What was, what was getting back into the, uh, into the arena like for you? So for me, it was almost, I hadn't even shut down grand venture illegally yet when the opportunity came to start duck dents. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was one of those things where I knew I was in the process of shutting it down. I knew we were out of money and I didn't know what I was going to do. And the opportunity arose to uh, start duck dens. And really what it came down to was, well, I can go back and work for the company I worked for previously as an engineer, or I can dive right in, use fresh the failures I learned and see what we can make happen. So tell me about a duck den then, because that sounds kind of fun. So what it, is it? It's a really simple product. So um, it's literally a birdhouse for seven species of ducks. Oh, so the duck lives in it? Yeah, literally they nest in it in the spring oh, okay. and summer, and that that's the extent of it. Because it says in your in your little bio that it's to help waterfowl hunters enjoy better uh, enjoy yes. water. So I'm, I'm just thinking, I'm thinking it's so, like a blind that you're making for these the, guys. The too. blind is coming in June. Okay, all right. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> The Ducton was kind of our initial product. It was a test into the market. I had been familiar with plastics manufacturing, and there were a few other plastic boxes on the market. Um, they had some fail points, and they had some issues with difficulty of setting up. So it's and like a just, nesting box, yeah? Yeah, it's literally a nesting box. Okay. And so what it came down to was uh, 
I designed and built the mold in house um, to keep it low budget. And then we launched the uh, manufacturing side of getting these things produced uh, locally. And now we're working on bringing complete manufacturing inside our facility. I've got a stupid question. So do they only work for ducks then, or could you make them for any kind of bird? So um, actually one of the struggles with it is uh, depending on where you're at, certain owls will use it. That's what I was going to say. Owls love that kind of thing. Yes. So um, the, our primary target market is focused on ducks. Mm-hmm. Um, they 100% work for certain owls. Um, and then there's also a few other uh, birds um, that will nest in them as well. Um, a lot of our customers actually do things to prevent that. So starlings will nest in them like crazy. Oh, yeah. And so one way to prevent that is actually mount a birdhouse near that, and starlings will go to the birdhouse instead of the duck den. Okay, okay. So there, there's some things like that that, uh, you know, there's definitely other species that will utilize them. Our primary market is duck hunting. Mm-hmm. Um, I started duck hunting five, six years ago, fell in love with it. So when this opportunity arose, I hopped on it and, uh, you know, my partner and I have done pretty well with it so far. Um, I launched a blind concept for it in October and we're building the tooling for that right now in house. Um, reason for building it in house, we saved about $200,000. Wow. I mean, that blind, that's gotta be, that's gotta be quite a different proposition when it comes to just building it and, and packaging it and shipping it. And yeah. Are you, are you going to ship them flat packed or are, you, are they are like all one piece? So, so it's all one piece. Um, I'm careful on what I say about it just because of what we're doing, but it's all one piece blind. Um, it's a pit blind. So it'll go in the ground and about six inches of it sticks up. Oh, wow. And so, so you're actually in the ground and birds are flying in landing in front of you when you stand up to start shooting. Um, so with that, there's pit blinds on the market, but nothing quite like ours. Mm-hmm. And with our manufacturing process, we'll be able to create a product that's uh, essentially leak proof from the bottom, which no one else is able to do. Okay. And then um, our cost um, will be able to be a much better price point due to our manufacturing process. So how has the duck hunting community kind of received this so far? Are you, are you a hit with them or are you just having trouble um, kind of getting so across far, to that? Yeah. It's gone a lot better than I expected. Um, the first step I did was start establishing Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, our target market for this product, uh, or at least the duck den product, is age about 24 to about 52. Okay. And so with that being, you've got a lot of people in that, in the hunting industry that are of that age that are on Instagram and then uh, Facebook does well also for us. So um, we've avoided through COVID everything trade shows were down anyways, but we avoided trade show marketing initially and really focused on social media. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, you spend a little over a hundred thousand dollars on trade shows and don't gain a lot for it. You you think twice about it. You can get a good return with a hundred thousand dollars on social media. I know that exactly uh, for a fact. (laughs) Yeah, you can so, do really well. So walk us through your walk us through your marketing right now. What what are you doing as far as social media? Are you, are you trying to play a likable, attractive character? Are you trying to build a group? What are you What are you working on over there? So we started our Facebook group a few weeks ago. That's um, fairly new to us. We're hovering right around two hundred uh, group members right now. So that's one avenue we just started looking at. And really, our base there is um, 
the focus of the group is teaching guys how to get more ducks in their area, how to increase breeding, how to increase production, food sources, mm-hmm. all of that stuff within what's legally allowed. Um, which in waterfowl industry, because they're federally protected among Canada, U.S., and Mexico, there's federal guidelines you have to follow. Okay. Um, for food plots and all the stuff that would produce food for them to continue breeding at larger numbers. Um, hmm. So we're kind of focusing on helping guys understand what they can and can't do. No, um, I get that. Yeah. So that's kind of the group perspective. Um, the Instagram, really what we're focusing on is um, trying to bring some knowledge and some awareness on different ways you can duck hunt um, different species, how to hunt them. And also um, a big thing in the hunting industry is, you know, if you're hunting, eat what you're hunting. And Absolutely. so every, every Tuesday we do a taco Tuesday, which is a Mexican influenced, um, either tacos, fajitas, burritos, all that kind of stuff for good ways of cooking ducks and geese. You aware I've seen the duck tacos. Yup. So that, that, that's one of those things where, uh, I love cooking wild game. So that was kind of one of those things I did for fun initially. And mm-hmm. it's actually one of our best reaching uh, posts. That's pretty, that's pretty sweet, man. I've, I've got another buddy that's into hunting. He's a, he's a gamekeeper and he posts recipes about squirrel. And okay. um, you think it's gross, but then he's got over a million subscribers on his YouTube channel now. And you're just like, how does squirrel recipes get that much engagement? Yep. But um, it's, dude, no, it's, it's, it's crazy. So dude, it sounds like you're building a little culture over there around hunters and helping them um, have better experiences putting ducks together. Tell me a bit, but uh, sorry, tell me a little bit about your uh, your kind of long term plans for Duck Dens. What what are your five year goals with that company? So um, the first step is to reach that five year goal is the pit blind will launch in June. Mm-hmm. But uh, my long term goal is I want hunt duck hunters uh, specifically to look at us as a company that's looking at innovating all products regarding hunter access and um, uh, influencing uh, bird numbers. So um, a product we're actually looking to launch um, in 2022 will actually help hunters more easily access uh, hunting on ice, which I hunt on ice now, it's very dangerous. Um, I've developed kind of a method that works for me to stay safe. but through that process of kind of trial and error, I learned uh, a way to mass produce a product that we can actually launch that offers people the ability to do that safely. So we'll launch that in 2022. Dude, that's crazy. All the things you, you think of that you can do. And I, I would never actually imagine hunting on ice. And, and when you said it, my mind, my mind immediately went to Disney. And you guys just dancing okay. around, dancing around on the pond with your, uh, with your <laughs> assault rifles, trying to trying to cook up ducks. But uh, no, that sounds like a uh, a really decent challenge, man. Something for you to get your uh, get your teeth into. <laughs> so yeah, sorry, go on. So the primary goal is we want to be that kind of company everyone in the industry knows of, trusts, and looks to buy those products that yeah, they, absolutely that it helps them get out there and enjoy that experience. So what would you say? Going back to your RV days and leading into your duck tents days and even now to duck tents, what's the biggest takeaway you've got from being an entrepreneur and getting this far? Uh, if you're failing, you're failing somewhere because you're not improving somewhere. Well, that's how we grow, isn't it? That, that's exactly how we grow. <laughs> Every area that I failed in, it was because I was not doing something right or not doing something in a way that was the most efficient. And so 
Um, the biggest thing I learned is look at what your fail points are. For one, is there someone better than you to work in that role? And for two, um, if not, what do you need to do to get better in that role until then? No, I like that. I like that. That's a that's a really good way to uh, to look at it. So um, anyway, you have a, a manufacturing podcast, don't you? Yeah. All right. So let's dive into manufacturing a little bit because I know some of our listeners are uh, selling stuff online, and uh, me myself, I've used manufacturers to uh, to supply products and stuff for some of my online campaigns for businesses in the past. So tell us a little bit about your podcast, and let's dip into the world of manufacturing for a minute. It's the uh, IDMS podcast. Is that right? Yep, that's correct. Okay. And, so, uh, so what do you guys talk about on there? So um, our goal with the IDMS podcast is to bring on other manufacturers that uh, either manufacture product directly for a consumer that they're marketing and selling themselves, or they're going to someone else who's retailing it, like someone who came up the idea and came with them to manufacture it. Mm -hmm. So um, we've got a wide variety of people involved, um, everything from firearms to RV to we've had guys that do t-shirts um, and we're we're still on like episode like 10 or 12 okay. at this point. So relatively new. And really what we're looking to do is bring as many people involved in manufacturing because everyone's afraid of the hurdles that you come to when you get into manufacturing. So money is always a big one. And then yeah. how do you do it? Let's touch on a little of those hurdles then. Cause aside from money, let's say, let's say I've got a little contraption I want to manufacture. Uh, I'm, I'm looking down at my desk and I see a, uh, I see a cell phone case. So let's say yeah. I've got some bang up idea to manufacture cell phone cases. Where would I even begin with that? That's that's usually where people struggle. Is the first thing is you've got to get it on paper one way or another, whether it be a hand sketch, whether it be you take it to an engineer or a designer that wants to draw up exactly what you want. The first thing you have to do is get that on paper. And um, that's usually one of the hardest things for people to do. Um, taking that idea and putting it into something that someone else can look at and say, yes, I can make this or no, I can't. That's crazy. You think how many inventions have been conceived on the back of a napkin? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to be honest, my first camper was actually drawn on a sheet of notebook paper with a marker. Dude, I, I live with a notebook. I draw everything. I sketch everything. I, I yep. plan I plan everything on a notebook. It, it all ends up on the computer and on my calendar, but it's first, uh, yeah, it, it first exists uh, in a pen and on a notebook. So, yep. all right, so my next step then, I've got my drawing, and now I come to you and say, hey, I need to make 5,000 of these. What, what exactly happens in the process? So we just bought our first injection molding machine actually. And okay. so for something like a cell phone case, it comes down to, okay, is it hard plastic? Does it have multiple pieces? Is it got a rubber texture to it? And then it breaks down if it's, let's say it's got one of the kickstands on it mm -hmm. and it's rubber molded over your plastic. Um, you're looking at, okay, you've got to have a mold for your initial plastic piece. Then you've got to have a mold for your kickstand. Mm -hmm. And then a typically uh, those two molds will have nubs on them that let them lock together. Okay. And then you'll do a rubber over mold where you're actually, you're molding a rubber section that'll go around your phone case. And so what most people are trying to figure out in that step is, okay, how many parts do I need and how much tooling do I need? Because tooling is the most expensive part of something like that. So if I wanted to make a run of a specific product, what kind of tooling cost would I be looking at on average? Something like that, honestly, is probably going to be almost fifteen to $20,000 in tooling. 
Okay. If you're going with prototype ability tooling, if you're going with long-term run millions, you're probably looking at a hundred thousand dollars. Wow. So does that put a lot of people off then? It puts a ton of people off. And, um, the reason being is you can, with manufacturing in the U S we've gotten to the point where you almost have to be different because if it's already produced in China, we're going to struggle competing with it unless it's something people care about being made here. Mm-hmm. So you've got to have something that sets your product apart that makes it worth the investment. And there's much cheaper ways of producing certain products. So something like that injection moldings, your only option because someone's only willing to spend 50 or 60 bucks on it. Right. If you're looking at a two or $300 product, you can get into products that are a lot less expensive on the tooling side, but mm-hmm. they're more expensive on the part side. So what would an example of that be then? So our duck box, we rotational mold. Um, so tooling on something like that is going to cost you five or $6,000. An injection mold for something like that's closer to 70000 Wow. That's quite a bit of difference. Quite yeah. staggering. Yeah. So, so, I mean, the part the- cost is you see a 15 to 15 to 20 dollar part cost difference overall mm-hmm. um but if you're in the startup phase you can afford to get launched and lose that 15 bucks a piece to figure out is the market there can i grow my market share can i get these things going the margin's still there it's just right. not quite as large and right. once you're at the point where you can say okay this is making sense let's go to injection molding where we can eat we can take that extra 15 bucks yeah and a profit every time because we're going to do a hundred thousand of these or we're going to do fifty thousand of them so what, what would you say the biggest mistake that somebody looking to dip into manufacturing makes is it the fact that they're just unaware of the overall cost of things or or what Usually it's unaware of the overall cost. And the other aspect of it is a lot of people will lock in exactly how they want to do something prior to figuring out the best manufacturing methods. Huh. That's kind of strange. So do you do a much consulting on manufacturing then? Is that something you're looking to move into? Or? It's something in the next three to five years I'd like to, I do some of it now. Mm-hmm. Um, I limit how much I did. I consulted for three or four different guys this year. Um, and it was one of those things where I'm very picky on what I'm consulting for right. just because it's one of those things where the wrong, the wrong person you're consulting with for one can go in a horrible direction. I know <laughs> yeah. that from experience. Yeah. Yeah. We've, <laughs> we've all, we've all, uh, we've all parted ways with clients that we haven't quite yeah. uh, seen in my, alignment with. Yeah. My first consulting client, actually, uh, I didn't consult again for two years after that. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, that's, it, it was one of those things where it was the worst case scenario of everything went wrong. And I had other things on my plate. I took on consulting with them mm-hmm. more as a favor than it was a job. You right. know, I'm, I was going to make 15, $20,000 on the deal in the long run. It almost cost me 40. Oh, wow. 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 So, it, and we parted ways in a, you know, it, it was an ugly part because they were unhappy with what they were looking at but they weren't looking at doing anything the correct way. They could have saved a ton of money going the other way. Yeah. The one thing I've learned in my 
time consulting is that you know the uh, the intake interview has to be done very thoroughly and if those yes. if those core values don't line up it doesn't matter how much money's involved you've got to uh, you got to kind of back off from yeah. that and say hey no this this isn't for me and it, it's it's funny especially first starting out when when you're hungry for it and you're like well right. should I, I, I got to take some clients I got to make some money but man over the long term I've, I've really learned that boy if that if that intake interview doesn't go well then you're better off just uh, just yeah. refer them to to somebody else so and, and it was it was one of those things where you know i came home i told my wife i said you know i i really don't care for these guys but i think it's a good opportunity and i think we can do this it'll be a 30 to 60 day deal shouldn't be that big of a deal mm-hmm. 14 months later i finally cut ties oh good lord yeah that, that's, uh, that's so that's, that's overdoing it a little bit right there and it, it was one of those things where it just it was i didn't you know, I didn't want to walk away from the deal because I felt like they, they had potential to do what they wanted correctly. They just right. weren't willing to get there. Yeah, that, that's such a shame when people don't, uh, they don't have it all um, drawn out properly. But uh, what would you say your biggest takeaway from that was? Um, exactly what you said. Meet with the people initially, be very thorough, um, have everything very well laid out of what they need in place in order to get the results they want. And do, you know, make sure that core values align and that you two can mesh and work well together. I, I like that. And while we're on the subject of core values, okay, we've got seven of them around here. Um, and I don't want to steal any of yours, but my most important core value is uh, it's, it's twofold. It's show up on time and do what you say that you're going to do. Um, what is your most important core value that runs throughout your business? So... Um, and my two salesmen know this 100% honesty. And if you screw up, make it right. Oh, absolutely. Yes. The, you know, those are the two things that, you know, <laughs> I don't care if they screw up, let me know what we need to do to make it right. And whatever you do, always be honest. I was his accountability and it says right underneath the subheading is own your shit. <laughs> yes. I love that. <laughs> Cause if, if we can, yeah, we all make mistakes, right? But if, right. if, uh, if we can get between the client and the mistake, then we can solve it at the company level. Absolutely. And if we can't, then we go to the client, we put our hands up and say, Hey, I've made a mistake. Here's what I need to do to, to, to handle it. And you know, like you overheard my phone call earlier, uh, well, before we were getting on the podcast and I've, I've got a uh, attorney that's made a mistake and he's blaming everybody in his office but himself. And I'm like, dude, just own it and fix it. Come on. Right. <laughs> so, exactly. Uh, I love, I love the honesty throughout the business. Um, dude, I'm having a blast, Zach, getting to know you, man. I, I want to dip back into uh, your failure a little bit. And I want to yeah. ask you a question that I ask all of my guests at one point or another during the podcast. So sorry if I put you on the spot oh, a little good. bit. But I want you to look back and uh, think back 10 or 12 or 15 years ago to where you were and give one piece of advice to the people that are listening to this podcast that are maybe just starting out as entrepreneurs. What's one thing that you wish you knew then that you know now that you could share with the listeners? Um, Not trying to put you on the spot. <laughs> yeah. So, so from uh, my experience... Um, in the process of grand venture, when everything was, I was looking at divorce. My wife and I had been to the point where we had figured out what we were splitting up, what was going, um, you know, it was at the point where I literally said, you can have everything. Um, this is just, you know, it, it's not working. 
and I was actually in a uh, really depressed and really dark place. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I'm darker than most people would like to ever be, but most entrepreneurs have experienced it at one point or another. That's Um, the point of the show, buddy. It it is. (laughs) And so at, at that point, it was one of those things where, um, I thought my life was over. There was nothing, no overcoming it. There's nothing around the corner. It was basically you're getting divorced. You're going to end up filing bankruptcy and good luck. Um, The best advice there is no, something is around the corner. It, It may not be what you anticipated, but if you keep putting in the work and keep pushing forward, something is around the corner. Dude, I like that. I man, I don't want to cut off your advice, but I want to piggyback on that advice too. Yeah, go ahead. You're not alone. Like no. you're not alone. That's the whole point, the whole premise of the show and why I set it up is that we've all been through the same shit, man. I lost I lost a seven figure business from right. being dumb and drinking too much and not paying attention. So I mean, we've all been through it and you know, you sit there and you try and you got the weight of the world crushing down on your shoulders, <laughs> the weight of being the dad, the weight of owning the the family and the weight of everything and you're like, well, shit, I'm by myself and the more people out there that realize that hey, you're not alone. We've all uh, we've all walked this path. It gets a little bit easier. Uh, I think the better for the community, especially with what's been going on with COVID and suicide rates yeah. of business owners and shit. So uh, yeah, thank it, you, it, dude, for sharing that. No, I mean, it, it's one of those things where truthfully, um, you know, as entrepreneurs, none of us want to admit how how hard or how dark it can be. We all love the highlight reel of we, we did do. this, we did yes. that. I mean, we, we love the highs because of how low the lows can be. Absolutely. That's why I set this up is because, you know, you go around the Chamber of Commerce or, or me, I'm, I sell real estate. So you go around the Realtors Association and stuff yep. and it's everybody is being like this super duper um, well-oiled, successful version of themselves. Excuse me yeah. just a second. You're good. My battery's going dead here on my headset. i got to plug that in real quick. There we go. Problem solved. But they're all trying to be this, this super successful version of themselves when in reality every single one of us that's made it to a level of success that most people would consider successful have all walked through uh, the gauntlet of failure and some of us oh, more yeah. than, some of us more than once so uh, dude i really appreciate you sharing uh, sharing that with us so going back to the podcast for a little bit before we uh, get wrapped up because we're we're running into time here yeah um it's the idms podcast tell us a little bit about it and where we can find you online man so um, you can find us on Instagram at IDMS podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, our website's in process of being built now. You'll be able to find us there as well. Dude, all websites are in the process of being built. Doesn't that I always mean, happen? It is. <laughs> I mean, um, our developer's working on it. Unfortunately, the DuckDens um, website is getting more renovated than that is. It's just more time important. constraints. And, and tell us a little bit about how to find DuckDens as well. So uh, DuckDens is at DuckDens on Instagram. It's DuckDens on Facebook and theDuckDens.com. All right. Well, cool. All right. I'm going to ask you one more question. Zach, is there any other message that you would like to get out to the guys listening to Small Business Surgeon today before we wrap this up? Uh, Don't be afraid to start and don't quit once you start. I mean. Perfect. Dude. Thank you so much for coming on, man. I really, really appreciate you taking the time out to talk to us and uh, sharing your story. Guys, that has been Zach Clevenger. Did I get it right that time? 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I spelled it phonetically on my pad after you told me <laughs> off there. That's been Zach Clevenger, the owner of Duck Dens LLC. You'll jump on Instagram and give those guys a follow. And uh, if you are into manufacturing, he is the guy to uh, to talk to. Check out his podcast over at the IDMS podcast over on iTunes. Zach, thank you once again for joining us, my friend. It's been my pleasure to, uh, to talk with you. And uh, guys, we will see you all next Friday for another episode of Friday Fire. Thank you so much for checking us out. And uh, if you've liked the show, remember, run on over to iTunes, subscribe, and leave us a review. All right, guys, I'll see you Friday. Zach, thanks, buddy. I appreciate you. Thanks for having us. I appreciate it. All right, thanks, guys. This has been the Small Business Surgeon Podcast. If you made it this far, you clearly liked it. So go on iTunes and leave us a five-star review. This helps people find the show and spread the good word. Share it with friends and follow us at Small Business Surgeon on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you for your follow-up next week. The Small Business Surgeon was recorded at Texas Media Foundry in downtown Bryan, Texas. Check them out at txfoundry.com. Ooh, yeah.